1: and systems conference is now accepting applications to the inclusion at rss program applications are due march 13, 2020 the rss community is committed to increasing the participation of groups traditionally underrepresented in robotics including but not limited to women lgbtq underrepresented minorities and people with disabilities Inclusion at RSS is a way to increase and sustain a broader participation in the robotics research community. This opportunity is especially for people early in their studies and career, and participants will receive travel support. You can find the application at roboticsconference.org under the Inclusion at RSS page. Again, Inclusion at RSS is now accepting applications until March 13, 2020.
0: Welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Um, Could you please introduce yourself?
2: Yes, good morning. Uh, My name is Michael Levin. I am the uh, director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University and a professor of biology. Mm -hmm. I'm also an associate faculty at the Wyss Institute at Harvard.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I would like to ask you first um, how you define robotics, soft robotics, from your eyes as a biologist.
2: Well, uh, so to, to uh, first uh, just to say that uh, my primary job—I'm not a roboticist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a background in computer science, but for the last uh, 20 or so years, I've been uh, running a, a developmental biology lab. So I am not primarily a roboticist, uh, but in my mind, uh, soft robotics is the, the creation of uh, machines uh, with predictable uh, kinds of behavior that are made of soft materials. So. Uh, this is uh, this is how I see things, but uh, obviously there are other definitions that people in the field use.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm just about uh, because we know that about that living robot, the first living robot. If I was ask you, what is actually a living robot? You can define for people the first time listening about what's living robot
2: yeah well i think one of the things that our work does is highlight the fact that we actually do not have very crisp definitions of a lot of words that people use all the time Mm -hmm. so people think they know what a machine is what an animal is what a robot is what a body is what evolutionary history is all of these things we use in in daily language all the time but actually uh, examples like like this uh, suggest that we really, as a community, need to do a lot more work mm-hmm. to understand what are the what are the most useful definitions of words like this. So, uh, to what I would say is that uh, the 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 create the constructs that we made, these xenobots are uh, definitely living because they're made of living cells, mm-hmm. and they do all of the activities that match uh, most reasonable uh, definitions of what of what life is. And they're they're a robot in the sense that they're uh, their activity and their and their function is to some extent controllable by us. I mean people people have referred to insects as robots as well and, mm-hmm. and, and other other types of animals. I mean, the, the, the what exactly a robot is nowadays where where both the technology and the uh, programming has become very flexible such that robots are no longer necessarily uh, extremely sort of boring predictive predictable um, agents uh, the, the, the the definition of robot is is up for grabs but but basically it is a it is a synthetic living machine in the sense that it is made of living cells mm-hmm. the, the whole organism is living and we have some degree of programmability over what it does
0: mm mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I, I would like to go to your lab' ultimate goal because it's really interesting description you had about the top-down control of complex biological shape, and that's led to because in soft robotics somehow we're interested in integrating smart material in our robots, and now we have the cells, the cellular robots, sorry, from living cell. So how you see this kind of uh, like this definition about shape and how it is important really to consider the morphology. T- from this point of view, how it really matters so much in designing
2: yeah, so so just to go back a step, um, the goal of our lab is really to understand how living tissue processes information. We want to understand computation that is uh, performed by living living organisms and at all scale whole uh, to whole animals and organs and everything in between. And so that information comes in two flavors. There's information uh, that comes in via learning and memory, and part of our lab does that and, and tries to understand how learning in, in, in brains and actually outside of brains and various tissues takes place. But some very important Important information in living things is is structural, is is, is mm-hmm. anatomy. So if we sort of ask the question of where does anatomy come from, and we all we're all used to embryonic development and the idea that an egg can reliably give rise to cells that self-assemble into a very particular, uh, high, highly reliable um, anatomy. And then some animals are even able to regenerate. So if they get injured, they're able to re- recreate certain organs. Um, let's say salamanders, if they lose an arm, they can they can recreate the arm or or, or um, eyes or, or or tails, various other organs. And so the biggest puzzle in this field is How how do the cells know what to build? How do they know what to build, and how do they know when to stop? Because when the cells rebuild a particular uh, organ, such as an arm, uh, that then then they stop when they when they have completed uh, the creation of a of a a correct salamander arm. Well, how do they know what a salamander arm is? And so for us, uh, what we try to do is really to understand how cells store and manipulate Mm -hmm. the information that allows them to cooperate together to build large structures and maintain large structures. And these these Cinnabots are part of that effort because this is our attempt to recreate the process from scratch. Mm. So we're really the, the the goal for us, the goal of this work. I mean, there are many outcomes that that would be useful, but one of the fundamental goals of this of this work is not just that we we will have useful robots, but actually that we will understand how cells. Uh, make decisions about very large things like organs and 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 mm-hmm. organ systems and once we do that we will actually be able to address all sorts of problems of regenerative medicine so if you think about it mm-hmm. all of the problems of medicine basically boil down to control of shape so birth defects mm-hmm. traumatic injury tumor reprogramming all of these things could be solved if we uh if we understood how cells make decisions so for us This is this is very much a computational problem, um, and the robotics is uh, our attempt to test the theories that we have and to try to uh, uh, see if we really understand how this works and to improve our understanding of how cells control shape. And so shape will be will be critical for biomedicine, but also, of course, for for robotics and and even for things like communications networks, anywhere where where the structure is is critical to the function Mm -hmm. uh, would be really important.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. So it's all about understanding. That leads a question about uh, the structure of having skin and cell, heart for for the engine boat. And what's really interesting, the emergent behavior that we saw that they, when they have a swarming and they may, like move in different direction and when they make constructions. So if there is like explanation. Is there conscious how? Because we know that the evolutionary organism can really suggest this structure. But, when you go to the living st- uh, structure, how it how it's done Is it's like the properties of the cells. Is there an explanation why this happened this emergent behavior?
2: Yeah, uh, and, and I should say that that, that uh, what we show in this one uh, paper that just came out is only the tip of the iceberg. We have, we have a ton more data that's currently mm. being written up and, of course, lots more to do still that uh, will describe uh, many, many more emergent behaviors that these things have. And one of the important uh, aspects of this work right now is to uh, really uh, get a good uh, computational modeling understanding of... Uh, what it is that these cells are saying to each other that allows them to do this. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is exploiting cellular plasticity, not in the sense of stem cells, not in the sense of uh, Mm -hmm. cells becoming different cell types, but actually uh, cells in communication with other cells and forming collective cell groups or tissues that can that can make decisions about how they're going to pattern and how they're going to act. And what we've learned, and this is this is something we've been suggesting for a long time, but now, now this is a particularly, I think, um, uh, interesting implementation of it, is that all cells, not just neurons, but all mm. cells are really fundamentally uh, quite intelligent signaling agents. This mm. goes back to the time when, when we were all unicellular organisms and every cell had to do everything. It had to do behavior, physiology, uh, survival everything on its own and body cells did not lose this ability they still have this this IQ and they're able to now however get together and work uh, as in groups towards much bigger goals such as making something that moves or or does other things in the environment and so what we what we see is that these these skin cells are communicating with each other they communicate using electrical, chemical, and mechanical signals, and they communicate with each other to try to sort of reboot multicellularity. They, they find mm-hmm. themselves together in a new configuration. They've been liberated from the constraints of the original embryo, and this is a chance for them to get together and build something else. And what we're, what we're finding out is that cell, at least metazoan cells love to get together and cooperate towards uh, towards building things, and that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So now it is, it is time to uh, really make uh, very detailed um, computation models of what exactly the cells are saying to each other that allows them to pursue these kind of large-scale goals. And that's that's a major uh, um, major direction for this project going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. So here is a question about when you go to, from different scales like micro or macro levels. What's really, really important to be concerned when you, you see this behavior? So it is really complex when you explain it or have a, a competition model in this level and you go into larger scale. It is the same scenario, or there is different consideration in that case.
2: Yeah, I think I think the biggest uh, c- the biggest um, consideration here is not so much the actual size. But in fact, the, the fact that we have nested scales, uh, nested levels of organization. So one of the one of the important things I, g- I gave a talk once called uh, Why Robots Don't mm-hmm. Get Cancer. And the reason robots don't get cancer is because in general, all of our technology is made of fairly dumb parts. Mm-hmm. So if you have a robot and hopefully the robot is a, is a little bit intelligent, but but most mostly it's made of dumb parts and we don't expect the parts to have their own goals. You hope the robot has some goals. But biology isn't like that biology has competency at every level so you have you have organ you have swarms of organisms that have colony level goals you have organisms that pursue goals you have organs that have uh, physiological goals you have cells which have morphogenetic goals and then you have uh, molecular networks which have homeostatic goals and all the way down every layer is a, is a is a is a is a minimally a, a minimal cognitive system that has the ability to take measurements to take actions sometimes they have memory they're able to pursue these local goals and um what what the, the downside of this is that occasionally some of these goals will diverge from the goals of the level above it. And this is how you get cancer is when a cell basically reverts back to a unicellular uh, lifestyle where it uh, stops participating in the uh, in the cognitive structure of the of the body and becomes uh, basically the the self itself. Um, its computational self shrinks down to the level of a single cell and then, and then there's cancer. And so so the downside is this and of course, in today's robotics, that doesn't happen and and so that's that, that that's good but the but the, the downside of, of not having it is that uh, we are very limited in in our um, in our robustness and our adaptability in the robotics so so one of the things life is very good at is at, at self-repair at mm-hmm. um, coming up with new solutions and novel problems and in learning from very few examples the, all of these things are uh, we I think a consequence of this multi-scale uh, goal-directed architecture at every level and so, Uh, Occasional uh, defections like cancer are the price we pay for it, but I I don't think there's any other way to get uh, large scale uh, general intelligence or adaptive behavior. And so this is the big challenge here Mm -hmm. is not so much the size, but actually the scales and how do we create technology that has uh, this sort of competency at every level, and then uh, specifically, what are the policies that we need to implement that would allow the, the lower level subunits and their goals to cooperate together towards larger scale goals. Biology has figured this out very mm. well, uh, and now we need to understand what the what those optimal policies are going to be.
0: Mm. That's very interesting, and I have a, a lot of questions, but here's a question, since you said something very important, it's about dump, and and... I would like to ask you first, do you think that the robotics community, especially soft robotics and application about surgical robotics and specifically, do you think that the direction has to be shifted to the solution because sometimes you have a technology which is not realistically can be applied to human body and we have this kind of struggle why we do this kind of research. So do you think that's kind of awareness or understanding what is the optimum solution we have to come up with and hence what we see that biology maybe have this answer? and uh, do you think this something is like awareness issue firstly in uh, in research in this direction
2: i think that um the, the 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 big thing that i would like people to have awareness of for this kind of work is that it is not specifically about having small robots uh do do useful tasks obviously mm-hmm. that's part of it we will have small robots that do useful tasks but the big but the bigger advance here is not that the bigger advance in, in this field when it matures, is that we are going to have a better understanding of how competent small subunits cooperate together towards large scale goals. Mm. This is going to revolutionize everything from, uh, from machine learning to the design of communication networks to, uh, to robotics and swarm robotics, and of course biomedicine uh, with applications that may have nothing to do with the actual robots themselves but just in understanding how you convince a, a, a pile of cells to do that, to do something uh, medically useful so the bigger the bigger uh, advance here is actually computational it's not about the physical body of the robots it's about understanding how coordination and communication mm-hmm. can be optimized for large scale outcomes how 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 to get basically programming swarms is the low, is the is the long range uh, objective here and and this will have, will have massive implications for the design of, of mm-hmm. everything from, from communication networks to regenerative medicine.
0: So if we ask about the limitation of the xenobots, what, what is the limitation already you, you have? There,
2: there are, yeah, there, there, are, there are lots of limitations right now. So, um, so the, for, for immediate applications of the xenobots themselves... Uh, some of the some of the limitations are, for example, that right now we have to make them by hand. Um, it's mm-hmm. very a uh, sort of low throughput. It's it's time consuming. So one of the things we'd like to do is to uh, develop methods to scale it up and to and to um, have it automated. Uh, another uh, limitation right now is that uh, currently they don't they don't eat, mm-hmm. and so they have a limited lifespan. Now that's also a good safety feature in a certain sense, but in, inside the laboratory we would like to have these things live longer. So we're trying to figure out how to feed them. Mm-hmm. But the bigger the bigger conceptual implementation is that this is this is brand new, uh, brand new work in the sense of trying to understand how the plasticity works so there we still do not have good, uh, good conceptual frameworks for understanding how goals of smaller agents add up to the goals of larger agents when they get together. And in fact, where do uh, the goals of, um, of of larger agents come from in the first place is a very important problem in computer science. Um, I would, I would point out two things. One, one is that um, every decision is a group decision. There's no such thing as a unified agent that is not made of parts. We are made of parts. Our brains are made of individual cells. I mean, everything that we think of as a, as a, as a coherent, single cognitive agent with goals is actually made of parts. And so, so understanding how Uh, pieces come together to, uh, to have a cognitive structure, memory and goals and, and so, and so on that are integrated, that seem like they belong to one uh, single agent is the central puzzle. I think of the philosophy of mind is Mm -hmm. to, is to find out, you know, how, uh, integrated, um, selves arise from, from, from basically a bag of parts. Well, what, what has to be the, the relationship between the parts. And so, um, so that's so, so that's that's really crucial. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that we still don't really understand where these go, where goals and motivations come from. If you think about it, right. it for a living system, it's pretty obvious how to motivate um, a living organism with rewards and punishments. You know, within a very short time frame, you look at a living system, you can figure out what it likes and what it doesn't like and what its preferences are. But actually, mm-hmm. for any kind of an artificial agent, for a robot or a computer or an AI, this is completely not obvious. You know, how how would you reward or punish an AI? I mean, it's for a computer, I mean, you can have an algorithm that tries to force mm-hmm. it, to do specific things but in fact what it what how you would motivate it you know does a computer really keep like if, if it plays chess does it actually care if it's yeah. going to win and and you could you know you could you could sort of pull the plug if it loses but that's is that really kind of any kind of negative reinforcement on the computer it's really not they don't they don't care so so this idea of, of where actual preferences and goals even come from is a major gap in our understanding i don't think we're going to have generalized intelligence until we solve this problem And it's also a major problem. People ask a lot about the uh, kind of risk aspects of of this work and including Mm -hmm. uh, of of robotics and and, uh, AI in general. I think part of where the risk comes from is that we don't know where goals come from. So if you Mm -hmm. have an Internet of Things or you have a new uh, artificial intelligence or some sort of giant um, communications and control network, what what is it going to want? I mean, we have absolutely no idea how to figure out pre- in advance how to predict uh, goal states for complex agents, and so this is this is part of uh, part of that work is to uh, is to figure out where preferences come from when new agents are created from uh, from swarms of, of smaller agents.
0: Mm-hmm. And for navigation as well, how this sc- kind of control aspect in for living cells. Uh, how you would you, if you said that rewarding or punishing? How you would imagine this would be in in Kistner, like a cancer treatment, or finding tumor? How you imagine this would be in inside a human body? If we assume yes, it, yeah,
2: yeah. So, so, so we we have done quite a bit of work on this, and and we're working very hard on this on this very problem. There there are two ways that we're addressing it. Number one is that we've actually discovered uh, how to read and write pattern memories, and this is basically what I mean by that is. Um, an encoded information structure in the tissues that tells the cells what they should be building. So for example, in the case mm-hmm. of a flatworm, we've discovered a bioelectric memory that literally tells the cells if they should be building one head or two and where these heads should be located. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool because you can, you can go in and you can, um, with a, with a fairly brief electrical manipulation, you can rewrite this uh, State. It's a stable, it's, I call it a memory because it's a stable electrical state that persists over long periods of time, but it's actually, like a, like any good memory, it's actually rewritable. So mm. you can alter this memory, and when you alter it and say instead of a normal one-headed pattern, you produce a two-headed pattern, mm-hmm. the cells will happily uh, build uh, to that pattern. They basically consult the um, they they consult the memory and they build whatever it says. And so you can make two headed worms and so on. And so we, we do this all the time in various model systems for our approaches to regenerative medicine. We ask, If let's say if there's a if there's an incorrect pattern that's going to lead to a birth defect or that prevents regeneration or there's a tumor like a a bioelectric Mm -hmm. pattern that keeps the cells uh, working independently instead of towards normal organogenesis, we can we can now in some cases uh, rewrite that that memory pattern and the cells will build. So it's kind of a it's an approach not to rewire the hardware of the cells, but actually to provide uh, inputs or experiences or signals to their software to get them to do what we want them to do. We're motivating the cells as cognitive agents. We're not trying to micromanage or force mm-hmm. their behavior, which is which is quite hard. So mm-hmm. so that's so that's one approach. The other approach, even even more along those lines, is to take very seriously the idea that these tissues are cognitive agents and basically to provide rewards and punishments. And this mm-hmm. is uh, it sounds kind of like a weird idea, but basically, almost everything in biology is able to. Uh, is able to learn from experience and try to improve its uh, its its life by doing things that bring it uh, rewards and so uh, we are developing uh, technologies where we can literally use tissue training uh, as a kind of uh, instrumental learning paradigm to reward uh, tissues for the growth and physiology that we like and away from uh, from disease states and and trying to take advantage of the of the learning and cognitive capacity of the electrical and chemical networks that live in not only brain tissue but also uh, in all cell types
0: mm-hmm. that's super fascinating and concerned uh, about micromanaging if, if you assume that you have a wrong memory and this living cells would be autonomously navigated inside our body for finding a tumor so how you make sure in this scenario of failure I, I'm just curious because I, I don't have the experience in biology but this is really like, curious how if you have like the wrong memory or you equipped with the wrong data how they can recorrect uh, it it's it's conscious I don't know. Is really how it's intelligent? Is this living cell?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, I, 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 the, the, in, intelligent in the sense that they're able to flexibly uh, change their behavior to solve particular problems mm-hmm. and reduce their stress. And so, so I think all all cells and tissues have this have this capacity. Um, how how we control it? I mean, in in the case of in the case of cancer, the simplest thing to do we think, is to reconnect the cells electrically to their neighbors. I mean, one of the first things that happens during uh, carcinogenic transformation is that cells lose electrical coupling to their neighbors. And when they do that, they basically shrink their computational boundary from from previously being quite a large network Mm -hmm. that could have large-scale goals and have large-scale memories about what it was supposed to build. Now, all of that is very small. It is down to the Uh, to the surface of a single cell. And in that case, the cell basically becomes an amoeba. The boundary between self and world shrinks. Uh, The cell begins to treat the rest of the body as just outside environment, and it goes around, does what it wants, meaning it proliferates and Mm -hmm. crawls wherever it wants. That's metastasis. So Mm -hmm. uh, our, our strategy, number one, I think the easiest strategy is going to be to force transform cells to reconnect uh, electrically with their neighbors and we've had uh, some success uh, with this in the in the in the frog model and we're currently trying this with human cells to basically uh, artificially uh, uh, force cells to be in electrical connection with their neighbors at which point they become part of the uh, patterning collective and they and they work towards normal physiology and normal tumor and uh, normal organogenesis despite the fact that they have maybe strong oncogene expression or or mutations whatever it's it, it looks like it worked that that works pretty well actually mm-hmm. so um that is our that is our approach right now
0: yeah and here is a the question because some other groups working on using like micro they uh, they develop by using electric ma- ma- miles magnetic control if we have a comparison i don't know if we can compare uh genobots in case treatment with microswimmers that's controlled by using wild magnetic control can you compare what's differentiated in from these approaches
2: yeah um yes absolutely uh, there, there are some fundamental differences so so uh, there have been some really nice uh advances i know from from mit from harvard there have been groups that mm. have made uh these uh, three bio basically 3d printed um, so structures on which they uh, they culture uh, uh, muscle cells and and they can activate those muscle cells either optogenetically or electrically or whatever. The the difference there is that that is uh, extremely um, b- bottom up engineering. You are you you as the as the engineer are responsible for putting in. Everything that this thing is going to do. In other words, you you have to design the, uh, the 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 3D printed structure. You have to understand its mechanics. You know exactly where the force is going to be generated. Mm-hmm. You lay down the cells. This is you you have to control every every bit of it. And you will what you will get is uh, is is a is a clear function of how well you predicted and understood what this thing is trying is supposed to be doing. Um, our our xenobots are an entirely different scenario because what we are trying to do is to exploit the natural uh, uh plasticity of the cells in their capacity to join together to have uh, specific uh, goals. So in the end, we want to manipulate those goals, and we do want to be able to uh, uh, program the collective to do useful things and to and to have uh, desired patterns. But fundamentally, what we are exploiting is the cells, internal intelligence and all the software inside of cells that allows them to work together as a group. So we do not tell those cells how to talk to each other. We do not tell them what to say. We do not tell them uh, how to rearrange themselves. All of this happens naturally. Mm. We, we sculpt in, in this one paper, we, we sculpted them a bit at the end to, uh, be according to the computer predictions, just to, to, to show that we, we have some understanding of, of what they're doing. But fundamentally, ours is, a, is an extremely emergent uh, approach whereby we do not want to micromanage and we don't want to 3D print anything. We are not trying to lay down specific cell types and specific arrangements. Mm. What we want to do is to take advantage of the cells' natural built in. Uh, capacity for cooperation towards uh, specific outcomes and we would we would like to motivate the cells with inputs and signals to do what we want them to do during patterning uh, basically the way that this is the, the, the same way that, that that complex bodies are created mm-hmm. we do not want to micromanage it and and the reason the reason that's important, I mean, obviously, uh, there are, there's room in this field for every every kind of approach. And it's great that that people are doing the bottom up stuff. Um, it's it's exciting work. Uh, yeah, what I think, you know, what I think the advantage of, of doing it our way is that fundamentally, if you think about the future, let's say even just let's say just in the in the biomedical area, uh, people are working on uh, stem cell biology. And so let's say, uh, for example, that the, the goals of stem cell biology are achieved, and you can make any cell type you want out of a single cell. Okay, so let's say that's solved, fine. Now somebody somebody loses their arm, mm-hmm. and now what? Ha- and now what? Because because there's 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 basically no hope of 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 micromanaging the 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 construction of let's say a human arm or an eye mm-hmm. or anything complex out of individual stem cells. It's just it's going to be too complicated. And so we really I think we really need to understand the processes of morphogenesis and self-assembly and the motivation where, you know, why cells build one thing rather than another thing uh, is, is critical because because controlling it top down at that level is going to be way, way easier to uh, achieve effects than trying to build it from scratch, at least at least in complex cases. For certainly for making things like bladders and, and, and simple things, it, it'll be fine to, to bioengineer directly.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And I really like this point about understanding. And when we have this kind of discussion since soft robotics is just we use smart material and we have like shortage in understanding how the material behave. Back into this one and and you also lab that truly understanding and exploiting the morphogenetic code, especially high regulative aspects, require us to understand not only molecules and genes involved, but also algorithms and computation. And concerning this code in your in, in the in your lab that I would like to ask you how this AI algorithm, the design is have to like understand uh, like every single detail is the cells, the models, because most of models like black box models. So I don't know how, how to which level it's really important to understand these cells. It is like you have to fully understand them or just certain pattern or aspect of them and the model to predict what you presented like skin cells and heart cells to make this movement. How, how yeah. does you figure out?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. And uh, I, I, I think the full answer to that will only be known in time, but my opinion right now is that we actually do not need to understand uh, uh, a large number of the details mm. because, because a lot of the implementation details are irrelevant to the key dynamics that are responsible for this process. So, so what we really need to understand is how much communication is there between the cells? What are they saying to each other? Uh, what is the control flow of the of the of the um, of the algorithm? Are they what are they minimizing? What are they maximizing? Uh, these these kinds of things. So we use a lot of concepts from from information theory, from cognitive science, where people talk about minimization of surprise and info taxes or the greediness for information and systems that take measurements, um, homeostatic loops. All of these things are, I think, the real pieces that we need are at the level of cybernetics and information theory, mm-hmm. not at the level of Molecular biology. I mean, it's it's very nice to know the molecular biology mechanisms, and 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 especially those are useful when we try to manipulate the system because that's what our control knobs are going to be. But the reality is, biology um, varies the details very widely.
0: Yeah.
2: And in fact, I mean, I'm 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 not a zoologist. I'm not tied to very specific living forms that we have here. I would like to understand life more broadly, and this ties to the field of artificial life and the question of life as it could be. So we're going to find either with synthetic life or with AI or with exobiology, with life on outside this planet, we are going to find examples of living things that uh, use completely different underlying mechanisms. And so I think what we need to be doing is not um, uh, tied into, into ex- exclusively to, uh, to the details of how cells do this, but what are they actually doing and what computational and informational tasks are they solving? And, and I think comp- Computer science and and robotics understands this very clearly, that there's a kind of uh, implementation independence where you can study the algorithm without caring particularly much how it's implemented. Biology has still not... Largely made its way into mm. that into that um, level of advance, I think, because because mostly um, almost everybody's exclusively working on programming at the hardware level. They're thinking about rewiring the pathways, genomic editing. All of mm. these things are kind of like how we programmed in the 40s, where to program a computer you literally had to move wires around and we have to move from that into a focus on the software where uh we we accept that the hardware is good enough it's reprogrammable um, we need to find whatever the native subroutines are and learn to use it and uh and be able to export those insights into biological and also non-biological hardware that's completely uh, different in terms of the details but what's going to be common are things like Infotaxis, things like strategies for information measurement and sharing in a swarm. Mm-hmm. Um, goal, goal-directed homeostatic processes where every layer has its own uh, lo- local set of goals. That, that that sort of thing, I think, is, is much more fundamental.
0: Yeah. And concerning simulation, because if you go into larger scale, do you think that simulation, uh, how, how much, I don't know how much accuracy, comparing to what, if you have simulation about z- xenobots and larger scale and comparing to the real life, do you think that something is really captured and that's why I don't know how much really accuracy you have in simulated swarm of robots den- before going to creating them and coming up with fabrication techniques because it takes time, as you said
2: yeah the sim, the simulator i mean this is this is really um the bondguard lab um kind of yeah. uh, expertise but but the simulator is actually quite good and the important thing is that i think as we just talked about i don't think you have to simulate every every tiny detail mm-hmm. i think you just have to capture um the large scale uh, uh control policies of the individuals and how they uh, how they add up to the swarm because in our case we captured, I mean, if from the from the let's say molecular biology point of view, we captured mm-hmm. almost none of the realities of of frog cells, and yet our predictive value for being able to make structures that do exactly what we thought they were going to do, would turned out to be very high, and and I think that's the lesson for for us right there is that uh, you 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 don't need to know or or to model every single. Detail in order to have good predictive value, you have to be modeling it at the correct level. And I think I think we've, we've identified the correct level.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I ask you what is the most misconception that you received about Dinobots when because it it's had a lot of attention, but do you think this misconceptions uh, maybe you saw any about Dinobots when people received
2: it? Yeah, the biggest of the, there have been a number of um, been a number of them. Um, I think I think the biggest the single biggest misconception I think is that people. Uh, generally assume that the big advance here is that we're going to have tiny robots for very specific tasks mm-hmm. and this is true we are going to have tiny robots for specific tasks but i think this is by far not the the, the point here i i think the, the 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 reason that i i believe this is a fairly transformative technology is for what it's going to tell us about systems that range from from whole societies to you know cities power grids communication networks uh, uh, to uh tumors cells in the body i mean it's a it's a pervasive the scaling of goals from from simple uh, agents to swarms of them is is pervasive and um, and and I think uh, the impact of this is going to be huge and and way beyond uh, anything having to do with small frog robots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an, another another thing that that people often jump to immediately is uh, some sort of um, uh, some sort of risk assessment, and in, in the sense that they're worried about the uh, the the potential misuses of mm-hmm. of this technology. Uh, and I think the reason this is and not that we shouldn't I mean for any technology you want to think about what the consequences are going to be but I think I think the biggest gap I see in, in the reasoning of, of people about this problem is that they always sort of try to think about what are the potential downsides of, of going forward in this direction of research but people almost never think about the opportunity cost of what happens if you don't do it so people kind of assume that, that everything will go well and in general and then we have the potential to screw it up with uh, with various uh, dangerous types of research but that actually isn't isn't the case um, I think that without a proper understanding of how to program swarms and how to yeah. predict the goals and behaviors of these kinds of systems we are going to be in big trouble uh, from for many reasons so. Um, hmm as a society and i think it's it's essential uh, to do this work and to do it uh, quickly and uh, at scale to really understand how it is that we can predict uh, control and and motivate uh, uh swarms of intelligent agents both both in the body and without because the consequences of not doing that in terms of in terms of uh, human suffering both from disease and then various uh uh technological and and, and environmental problems is, is going to be enormous i think if we're going to survive as a society. We absolutely have to do this. So what I would like people to do is when they when they do this kind of calculus is to really think about what's going to happen if we remain ignorant about where mm. uh, where um, goals come from and how we were actually going to make good on the promises of regenerative medicine that, that we've been told uh, for, for so long by people working on stem cells and genomics and so on. Yeah.
0: So uh, that's very interesting point. And I would like to ask you, since this is soft robotics in general, is in the disciplinary field. And when we have the bots, it's just like a new way to think about living robot, because it's just something completely new for our understanding. And I would like to ask you, when you work in this project, do you think there's like kind of uh, uh, speaking different languages, from biology to robotics? Because you have the background in, in, in computer science. That's why it makes be easier. But do you think when you're reading the the projects done so far do you think there's lack of understanding or you are not satisfied what is direction of research is going because i think you're more driven and the team to help and in, 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 in having something helpful uh, one day from the new bots. how do you read this uh, strides of research integrating different discipline to come up with new projects
2: yeah I think um, I think there are absolutely differences in how uh, uh, the various uh, subfields view things and oftentimes uh, it, the communication is is very um, non-trivial but um, mm-hmm. we, we have a we have here a great team um, uh, the Bongard lab yeah. and, and we uh, have been working together for for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we get along very well we, we speak a lot of the same uh kinds of uh, languages in terms of what it is that we're trying to achieve and more more broadly when i give talks i I always try to talk to a very diverse range of audiences so so Mm -hmm. i give talks to to computer scientists and roboticsists but also to cancer medicine folks and people in regeneration and and molecular developmental biology evolution uh cognitive science i talk to uh, basal cognition um, you know audiences and so on and and i really try to weave all this stuff together because I think um, increasingly in in science and technology, the problems that could have been solved uh, as as tiny sort of separate subfields, those are all gone. The remaining big problems that are facing us are all very multidisciplinary issues that don't obey the kind of convenient uh, categories that, that that human scientists have set up over the last uh, you know a couple of hundred years, and so. Um, I think it's up to us now to learn, to uh, work together, to address these things and and import the deep ideas from other fields. So I work very hard in my lab to make sure Mm. that the biologists are uh, getting the benefit of some deep ideas from robotics and computer science and conversely uh, I try to get the uh, the computational folks to really to really take on board what the biology is telling them which in, in many cases is a very different way of thinking you know biology is is fundamentally noisy everything is made of unreliable parts I mean parts mm-hmm. that are guaranteed to break down uh, quickly um, uh, mm-hmm. a, a very different strategy from how engineers normally build things and so it's important to not just have the computer scientists learn a bunch of a bunch of genetics jargon or, or learn about chemical pathways, it's important for them to really understand how biological systems solve problems and do things, because it's very different. And, and likewise, for the biologists to learn the deep insights of what, what is software and hardware really? What, you know, what, what does it mean? And, and these kinds of things. And, and that's why I, I work very hard to do that within my group and then to uh, publish reviews and to, and to give talks uh, that, that try to bring these things together.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do you expect how many years does it take to, to achieve the goal that you expected from Xenobots? Is something you can predict how many years?
2: Uh, boy, uh, predicting years on anything is, is uh, kind of the, 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 mm. the worst thing uh, any scientist can do. So, um, mm. no, I'm, I, I can't give you any, any believable, uh, um, you know, uh, real uh, timeline. Uh, but also, it really depends on what you mean by goals. You know, if, if we're talking about uh, having a xenobot that does something useful, I think I think we're we're a small handful of years away from that. I think if we're talking about uh, fully understanding what's going on here to revolutionize all of biomedicine, which I think is is the ultimate goal, I, I think that's going to take decades. But I think um, I, I I hope uh, I will live to see it, and I think most of us listening to this will in fact live to see it. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that th- that's about as close as I can get on the yeah. uh, on the temporal prediction.
0: Uh, I'm curious to ask you concerning because. The pain and emotion is is kind because there's some researcher designing robots that can feel pain, and this is kind of maybe hoax title because we don't know is this like a fake emotion. And I would like to ask you you think integrating emotion in Xenobot's future, like to feel the pain or of, of like patient has the pain and and they can like predict, oh, you can feel this pain or this kind of scenario. Do you imagine that something can be integrated and incorporated in living civil to feel the pain?
2: well let's i mean the thing to do here is to back up and 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 realize that we don't actually have any good understanding whatsoever of Mm -hmm. what those words mean Mm -hmm. um beside beside our own first person experience i mean what you're really talking about is the whole problem of conscious conscious experience and uh there are lots of people that study um that try to study consciousness what they're what they're usually studying is uh, either correlates of consciousness so some kind of uh, behavior or or neural state that they think goes along with various conscious states um, or or they're making claims about about something that uh, some, some kind of publicly observable behavior that they think indicates uh, the presence of consciousness but we actually have no idea what it means for uh, for for any other system besides ourselves uh, to to have uh, an experience and this is uh, this is something that's 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 fundamental. People argue about this in the philosophy of mind all the time. I don't think um, this, in particular, this kind of work in particular, is going to crack that problem. The only thing that I do know is that. Uh, I think this idea of real pain and fake pain is uh, is as, as as binary um binary categories. I think that's wrong. I think consciousness is a continuum, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, inevitably when when you break down a conscious system, you find nothing but physics, and so you have very simple physical systems like cuckoo clocks where you really don't think. Uh, there's, uh, there's much of a much of a, a, a an internal perspective there. I, I, I don't think uh, there's any reason to think that a simple mechanism like that w- would have a internal, uh, what does it feel like to be me kind of a consciousness, whether it's pain or pleasure or whatever. But, but and and then you have humans, but then of course you have this long, um, uh, uh, smooth uh, smooth continuum in between, and I don't think consciousness of, of of pain or anything else is something that appears as a binary. Uh, it wasn't there, but now bang, it's here, and now it's real, and everything before that was just uh, was just mechanism. I, I don't think there's any such magic line. I think it it, it increases uh, slowly. So there are there are probably amoebas that feel some degree of uh, true pain when things. Mm-hmm go wrong for them and their physiological and homeostatic parameters are completely out of whack. And then you have you have more and more complex uh, sets of internal states that eventually you get to a really complex one, like a human that can actually report it and talk to you about it and tell you how they feel. But it trying to trying to build that in is 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 very um, uh, unclear what it is exactly that you're trying to build in. And, and when when uh, when my I have I've, I've two kids and when my my son was about uh, probably six, he mm-hmm. said to me he wanted to make a robotic cat. And I said, fine, let's let's design, you know, let's make a design spec. What is it going to do? And he yeah. said, well, it has to move around and it has to look for food. And I said, yeah, well, we could probably do that. And then he said, and then it has to care. And I said, well, what do you mean? You mean it has to come up to you and, and want you to pet it? He said, no, 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 that's 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 it. not pretend to care. We have to make it actually care. Mm. And then I said, okay, well, now, now, we're, now this whole project is just blown up because we can't do it because we have absolutely no idea of what it means for anything to actually care because yeah. all we're going to do is build in uh, a set of responses uh, to various things that will avoid things that we think cats don't like and so on. But at what point does that become actual caring? I mean, at some point it must because that's how – uh, all living things uh, we are, are, are put together. I don't think there's any magic about it, but we actually have no idea what that what that ingredient is. And so, I think all of these questions of uh, putting in uh, internal perspective, consciousness, anything else into our creations, uh, really has to has to rest on trying to understand what that actually is in the first place. And that's a very contentious issue that's not resolved.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting one. I think this is about physical reasoning and psychological reasoning. And that's why maybe you highlight my psychological, we don't understand so much. Yeah. So if I ask you what is the most challenging part in that you expect in, in this project, that about, is it, of course, I'll let fabrication one issue, but when you look deeper and sometimes you'd like reflect what could be the most challenging, upcoming challenging part, what it could be from, do you think?
2: Oh, I I think the, the the all of the mechanical stuff, the fabrication, the molecular biology, the the characterization, all of that. Those those are not the those are not the difficult part. Um, I mean, they're challenging, obviously, but the, but that's not the fundamental difficult mm, part. Okay. The fundamentally difficult part is really cracking uh, this this scale up the scale up of cognition really understanding mm-hmm. on a conceptual level how best to model how local goals of many individual agents add up to a large scale goal of one integrated coherent agent this is the problem of, of developmental biology it's the problem of uh, of cognitive science and psychology it it is a very deep and fundamental problem that that pervades a lot of other sciences and technologies and that is going to be that is going to be the hard part this is the scale up of cognitive um, capacity and is 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 really going to be the, the the big advance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, concerning the Essex and regulation, do you think that xenobots now really deserve that kind of talks about Essex regulation, or still too early to consider this now? The Essex and regulation. Um, I-
2: yeah, I, I would say a couple of things um, in, in general. So so let's just let's just uh lay down the, the, the fundamental assumptions. Mm-hmm. I think I think in general, every living thing deserves some degree of respect um, proportionate to yeah. uh, the capacity of that thing to to uh, uh, to have some sort of conscious experience. Right. So so it's a continuum and we already have uh, a huge number of regulations, especially as scientists, we have a huge number of regulations that tell us what we can and cannot do, uh, in the name of progress to, um, to various uh, models of, of living things. So, so in order for scientist for, for a biologist to do an experiment in the lab, uh, that is pretty equivalent to what normal people do when they go fishing. We have to have, uh, we have to fill out a bunch of forms and wait months for uh, mm-hmm. a panel of, um, veterinarians and ethicists to look at this and to tell us whether this is okay or not. So there already is a, a, and, and there should be a, a, a very, um, Uh, a coherent structure in place for protecting living things under experimentation so so i I will say first that that i think that's exactly how it should be that's appropriate and living things um, uh, deserve uh, deserve respect uh having said that i think we need to really um think about these things in the global uh the global context of what else is is, uh is 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 happening in, in today in society so so people have talk to me about um the fact that they feel bad for these xenobots and we've, yeah. we've created these organisms but in, inevitably when i ask people whether they eat meat they say yes and then i ask them where if they know where hamburgers come from and you know as 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 as, as a society yeah. it, we have we already have massive problems with the mistreatment of animals that for sure exactly, are yeah. a, a more, you know some some kind of an agent that deserves respect so so yeah. we have we have large mammals adult mammals that are that are being used for food so I would say until until we we resolve those kind of issues and factory farming and everything else, uh, worrying about frog skin, I think, is so far down on the list that um, it's, it's kind of laughable to to, to worry about mm-hmm. that issue while, while these other things are going on. So I think uh, fundamentally, we absolutely have to think about the welfare of our creations. That is always the case. But we need to, we need to have um, a, a list that is ordered in some logical fashion where we spend the most amount of time worrying about the biggest problems and then work our way down the list. And I think I think these things are, are, are way down on the list of, of ethical problems that uh, that we have today with, with mistreatment of various living creatures.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And here's a question because we ask this question all the time, how we can make sure that develop robots, soft robotics or whatever cellular robots in the future beneficial to humanity as all. Well. How we can make sure that like these questions apply to what we do in our academia industry? How we can make sure this question is answered properly?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think uh, we have to, th- there's a general version of this and then there's a specific version about these bots. The, the general mm-hmm. version is for any scientist, when you think about how do I make sure that my invention is used uh, for good instead of evil, fundamentally i think that's an unsolvable problem i mean mm. fi- you know fire um uh, stone tools uh, sticks uh, you know th- any of these things that that were a tremendous uh, you know life-improving invention from from day one of 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 of, uh, of humanity has been used for good things and it's been misused and i think uh, humans are ingenious and i think no matter no matter what you uh, invent that is uh that is a that is a of benefit to mankind somebody somewhere is going to figure out some way to uh, do something uh, something bad with it and i think our our goal as a society should be to uh really uh, foster the positive uses and make sure that uh, we are ready to really understand all the ways that these things can can go wrong any kind of unintended consequence and also uh, targeted misuse by people who are not going to care about regulations. I mean, in this case, mm-hmm. okay, regulations are fine, but, but as, as often happens, the only ones paying attention to the regulations are going to be the people you're not worried about anyway. The, the people who you are worried about, everything from from terrorists to to um, people doing synthetic biology in their garage, uh, are not going to care at all about any regulations that anybody else uh, puts out. So so regulations are only, uh, I think, a part of the problem. The, the bigger thing is that we really have to, as a community, understand um, how this technology works and what is going to be, uh, what are, what are going to be countermeasures if if and when uh, something goes wrong. And this is this has been the case for bacteriology. It's been the case for virology. It's been uh, the case for any any other technology that that uh, the reason we study horrible infectious diseases is because we know that no matter what we do, either naturally or uh, or by design. There are going to be epidemics. There are going to be nasty diseases mm-hmm. spreading around, and the best thing we can do is understand how they work and and advance the field so that we have proper countermeasures. I think um, really really uh, moving moving the research and the science forward is our only defense against unintended consequences and against misuse of these things. We we just have to know how they work. Putting our head in the sand and pretending um, that this this will never be an issue is mm-hmm. is not is not going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think universities and research group and funding agency combine knowledge and solution? Because when you, it's an issue, sometimes you have the funding and you have to write a proposal of what you do. And sometimes, as I've seen, there's a real passion to develop scientific uh, takes through How do you read this kind of uh, funding and universities dealing with this knowledge or just having solution at the end of this project? How will you see that?
2: Um, I I'm not sure in this. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I think that uh, obviously there's a lot of interest in this work. I think certainly uh, funding bodies will be uh, will be having programs. If, I mean, some already do, and there, there will be surely there will be more. Uh, institutions uh, are, are obviously uh, in, in, involved in, in supporting this, this kind of work. There are lots of uh, centers now popping up for um, this kind of new uh, synthetic morphology and um, and and uh, and bio-robotics. Uh, Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's only going to expand. Um, and the, the the big difficulty is having funding bodies that understand the basic principles involved here and that are willing to pay for a very fundamental work. I think, I I think it's, it's, it's not too hard to get a, to get a grant for a very specific biomedical application, let's say, or some sort of robot that's immediately useful. You can get, uh, you can get money from, from industry and so on, but getting money for these basic, uh, uh, conceptual frameworks for really understanding what's going on here in a very interdisciplinary way involving cognitive science and, and information theory and everything else those that is still lagging very far behind and it always i mean it always has for for, for you know deep 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 questions um yeah. are hard to get money to to study and there are only a few private foundations really that that specifically address that need. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah so i would like to ask you where innovation comes from the innovation
2: <coughs> <coughs> innovation where does it come from Ah, uh, boy um well I, i'm not exactly sure uh, where innovation comes from but um new ideas I think come from, uh, thinking about problems, uh, in novel ways. And I think what, what really helps that is, uh, having, Having material uh, from other fields, meaning being informed about how people think about things in in other fields, and thinking and reading very very broadly, and, and being being educated uh, in a wide range of, of subjects, and not not overly not being overly narrow, and I suppose there are structures that can facilitate that by bringing together people in different fields and actually encourage uh, encouraging deep collaboration. Um, and then supporting, uh, supporting work at a very early stage where mm-hmm. it's still, it's still unclear what the product or what the, uh, the kind of application is going to be, but, 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 it, you know, f- fundamental questions. I think, I think places that encourage that kind of basic exploration and, and really encourage people to ask novel, difficult, and interdisciplinary questions are going to be the hotbeds of innovation. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's pretty critical for, uh, for moving forward on these difficult issues.
0: Yeah so do you think ego is important for the researcher do i think what ego ego yeah
2: um well i i don't know i've I've certainly i've certainly run into a lot of researchers where uh for them it has been a major driver and 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 i Mm -hmm. think a lot of people are are, are very motivated uh, by uh, this um, this kind of uh, kind of ego centered set of drives, where they want to be the best they can be and be perhaps uh, rise above uh, the sta- the status quo and the and the standard in the field and sort of stand out. So I think I think it can be a driver for uh, for some people. I, I've seen that go well and I've seen it go poorly. I, um, uh, we we all know uh, cases where uh, where that kind of thing is is overdone and 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 uh, sort of causes more harm than good. But mm-hmm. but for some people that works well and I also know other people that are uh, incredibly uh, talented innovative researchers that have a, that have a very a very little ego involvement and so so I, I don't think it's required but I think it is common in our field
0: hmm and uh, I would like to ask you if you have any robots at your home we you have any robots
2: robots in the home uh, not not uh, not the standard kind of robots we don't have any any um, uh, real robotics in terms of Alexis or anything mm-hmm. like that no
0: Okay, so I would like to ask you what is the most inspiring book you have ever read?
2: The most inspiring book, boy, that's, that's difficult. Um, uh, I, have, I have a few uh, I have a few favorites. Uh, one of them is uh, Hobstadter's uh, Girdle Escherbach. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one, that one was, uh, was a major inspiration. Another one that um, really uh, put me on the road to a lot of these things and, and I came across it when I was about 17 mm-hmm. was uh, Robert Becker's uh, The Body Electric. And uh, it really it really was was foundational in, in, uh, in how I thought about biological systems. I think I think those those two are probably uh, the ones that I can think of right off the top of my head. But there have been many that we have. In, in fact, in my lab, I have I have this this uh, thing in the hallway called the Wall of Heroes. And it's just yeah. basically about a dozen um, of old photographs of, of people that have inspired uh, my thinking. And, and most mm. of them have written books. And I'm sure I'm sure there would be some good ones there.
0: Yeah. And you wish for the humanity. In the next 100 years
2: for humanity in the next 100 years boy that's uh, that's that's not a, that's not a trivial question um i think uh i think what i would like is uh to finally gain control over uh growth and form and what i mean by that is basically mm-hmm. to resolve issues of, uh, the structure and health of the body. I think that mm-hmm. once we understand how to manipulate uh, three-dimensional living tissue, we're going to do away with concepts of disease, aging, um, degenerative disease decline these kinds of things and and at that point uh basically i mean you said 100 years i'm sort of thinking way Mm -hmm. way forward i think what we need to do is to go beyond the limitations of the physical body that we happen to have been handed by evolution and uh just sort of transcend those kind of limitations and really really start to work on the things that matter which are which are various uh (laughs) various advances in um uh, in, in the cognitive sphere that, that are currently, we, we are all limited and we all, get old, we all get older. We all get distracted from our work by various uh, mm-hmm. things that happen to us. And a lot of it is, is randomness. A lot of it is chance. And a lot of it is through ignorance. You know, things happen because we don't know how to prevent it. We don't know how to treat it. It's really completely, um, in the grand scheme of things, it's unnecessary. If we knew what we were doing uh, with biology, all of that could go away and, and we could really do some, uh, some, some, some incredible things. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's what I would like to see.
0: Yeah. And lastly, what is the best advice was given to you with a personal professional life and you would like to share with audience?
2: (sighs) The best advice. Um, I think the best advice uh, is is probably the opposite of the worst advice that I've gotten and the worst advice I've, I've gotten very consistently. Uh, which is uh, focus, focus, focus. That that mm-hmm. I think is is the advice that most of us get in this field um, is to uh, is to really uh, focus uh, very narrowly and drill down and uh, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, go 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 extremely deep. And I think it's nice to go deep, but I think uh, it's it's really important to uh, also understand uh, the broader picture and why you're doing it and what uh, it really means in the grand scheme of things. And so what I would say is um to don't don't forget to uh don't forget to uh, b- uh broaden out uh every once in a while you can't all be it can't all be drilled down you've got to you've got to uh go you've got to go broader as well and i think thinking thinking mm. deeply and not um not taking too seriously uh, uh, uh the advice of um, sort of sort of meta advice from other people you know people that mm. are very successful in their field but they may not and this i, I tell this to my students all the time yeah. when they leave the lab i said look there there are lots of uh, really talented, successful people that are very well calibrated on their own work, they are not necessarily well calibrated on your work. So when they tell you that so-and-so is impossible or it shouldn't be done or it can't be done, they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. And so what you need to do is, uh, what, what I think everybody needs to do is build up their own intuition and mm. know what, they, what they're talking about in their field and then go for it despite um, what anybody's telling them about um, what what is or is not uh, a good idea. You know, You, you need to develop your own, sense of, of, of how far to chase something and, and, and how, to, how to balance uh, risk, uh, risk-reward ratios on crazy ideas and things like this. Everybody has their own set point and you really mm. have to develop your own. You can't rely on anybody else to do it for you.
0: That's very good advice. And finally, do you have any final words you would like uh, to share for the robotics community?
2: Um, n- not, not really only, only to say that, uh, I think, I think it's a great community. It's one of the most, um, open-minded, uh, you know, I give my talk to, uh, different kinds of communities. And I can always judge, uh, by, uh, how they respond to novel ideas that, uh, that, that, may counteract things that are, uh, or contradict things that are, um, accepted in their, in their world. And, uh, some, some communities are, are, are very traditional and very, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, have a lot of resistance to, to, to new ideas and others are not. Yeah. And I think that uh computer engineers in general and roboticists in, in particular are, are very open and um and are a great community. It's one of my one of my favorite uh audiences to talk to
0: thanks so much. At the end of podcast and I tribute the rest of robotics I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you very much.